Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Um, I think if cleverness is being able to argue effectively, wisdom is being able to choose and when to argue and for how long to argue a point. Hi, I'm Lucy Clark and I'm the Features Editor at Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is Bo So. He's the author of the book Good Arguments. In a world where it seems bad arguments are everywhere, it seems particularly clever to get some tips from a world champion debater. This guy is trained in the art of good argument. In his book, Bo writes about how the skills of formal debate, such as being assigned a side or a team, can teach us how to be better communicators. And in doing so, he helps us understand how to disagree well, not only in public or work life. He also shows us how to apply these skills to everyday life and to our personal relationships. Bo So. I'd like to start by going back in time to when you were eight years old. You're in class 3H in a school on the leafy north shore of Sydney and Miss Hall, dressed in powder blue, gestures for you to come to the front of the room while she writes on the blackboard, Boso, South Korea. Tell us about that little boy. He's still here in some ways. He was someone very unsure, unsure of himself unsure of where he found himself. And the words that my teacher wrote were my name, Boso and South Korea, all in some ways an announcement of my difference to my peers. And so the uncertainty was not just about the usual uncertainties we have as children about who we are and and how we're likely to be received, but in particular about how my differences how they would color the rest of my experiences in this new life that I just began in Australia. And one of the main differences was the fact that you didn't speak the language. Tell us about how you navigated that in an Australian schoolyard. Um, Live conversation is so much harder than anything else that you have to do when you cross language lines because live conversation is when people mid-sentence pivot into talking about something completely different or... When they're excited about what you're saying, they interrupt you, right? And, and you don't know how you're going to get back into the conversation. And one of the things that I quickly learned is all of those difficulties tend to compound when it's a disagreement mm. because then people's passions start to run and their facial expressions don't match what they're saying anymore. And the interruptions and disruptions tend to pick up. The, the rhythm breaks apart. And so that, in addition to feeling this great uncertainty about how my differences would be received, all of that kind of made me resolve not to disagree very much at all, not to rock the boat, to mostly keep my thoughts to myself. Mm. And you relied on 
two words mainly, yes and okay. Yeah. For a good couple of years, right? Yeah. So how is it that in year five, you did something that seemed incredibly <laughs> counterintuitive to the little boy who just tried <laughs> to disagree, <laughs> not make a fuss and keep quiet? Well, this is the limits of the all yes philosophy, which <laughs> is you're very, uh, you're very suggestible. And when my fifth grade teacher said, you should join the debate team, I had to choose between yes and okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that kept me on board is what my teacher said next, which is in debate, when one person speaks, no one else does. And to someone who had been spun out of conversation and interrupted and, and disrupted, that felt irresistible. Mm. And so tell us about the very first time you um, approached a debate and how it felt. We must have been in the school kind of auditorium, um, the school hall, and, you know, the one with the kind of the corrugated iron roof. And I remember it was raining. And so you can hear this kind of percussion in the background. Um, and we'd gotten the topic ahead of time. It was that we should ban zoos. And so we did whatever passed for research when you're a fifth grader. And the thing I remember about it is just standing up there on stage and just looking at this kind of sea of faces. And when you start to speak, or even when you just present yourself up there, you start to see very subtle changes in the audience. You see people uncross their arms, or you see them wince out of recognition, or you see them nod a little bit. You see them turning to the person next to them and saying, you know, did you hear what, what he just said? And for me, I'd, I'd gotten so used to the idea that the world around me was unchangeable, that I would have to fit around it, that I would have to assimilate right, to, to the way things were. And when I started speaking, what had been the immovable surfaces of the world seemed to shift a little bit. And I thought maybe I could not only fit around what was happening, but I could change it too. Mm. that I could be in conversation with it, that I could move it. And that's a lot of thought to impose on a fifth grader. Yeah, <laughs> and the first debate. I mean, do you really remember it as the first time you were introduced to the power of persuasive talk? Certainly at scale. Mm. I'm sure I would have you know, suggested to a friend, let's go for this for lunch rather than something else. But the idea that you could talk to an audience about something substantive too, really a kind of a matter of policy, right? Something almost political. And in a setting where other people really disagree with you. I think that was my first time. So you've written the, uh, this book about the art of debating and what it can teach us about listening better and disagreeing well, which seems very timely. It seems always timely <laughs> these days. And um, you talk about the timeless secrets of effective communication and persuasion. I want to take a step right back mm -hmm. um, from the idea of the book and ask something fundamental about human nature. And yeah. um, I want to know why do you think it is that people want to win arguments and why persuading others to your point of view is so important? It's such a rich question. And I don't think there's a single answer. Um, I think we want to win arguments sometimes because we think our beliefs are really important. We think they're the best way for 
us to move forward as a community or a country or a group or, or as even just two people. But I think the deeper truth that you get at is there is also a kind of a competitive instinct, isn't there, mm. to better the other side. And maybe it's rooted in a kind of a fear of what would it mean for us to put forward our ideas and to have it rejected? So there is a kind of a, yeah, a dyad between a, a kind of an, an ego that wants to be dominant, wants to get out ahead, but mm. also fears um, being left behind. Why can't we stand back and respect uh, different ways of thinking more? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I think it's a very difficult thing because we want other people to be like us, right? Because we want them to be on our side, to vote for the same things we would vote for, to go for the same projects we would do. But we also know a world in which we all thought the same thing would be a pretty impoverished world, mm. right? So I think we're kind of caught in this way of wanting on one hand the other person to inch closer to us, but for there to remain that kind of separation. And, you know, I think we, we probably think about this most in our kind of intimate relationships, right? Like mm. one, one description of a romantic partnership is there's both a proximity and a similarity, but also a difference mm. um, that you're getting closer, but they're always kind of slightly out of reach. <laughs> this actually actually brings me <laughs> to something I thought I would get to later in the interview, actually, because you wrote in your book towards the end, and I immediately wanted to know more about it. Yeah. And you didn't actually then write more about it. Okay. So now is my chance to ask you more about it. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have had anything to talk about. <laughs> and this is what you wrote. The experience of seeing the world simultaneously through our eyes and those of another person was confusing, unsettling innovating. It was also not the worst description of love. So now you have to expand on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you actually just preceded it, I think, by talking about romantic love and yeah. disagreements in that sphere. Much easier as a writer to hide behind a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I, the idea I was trying to get at in that passage is debates, relationships, love, all of these things remind us of the limits of self-sufficiency. So it's not our perspective only that's enough in a conversation. It's not our perspective that's enough to form lasting connections with other people. So one of the things that we have to keep managing is we wanna be clear about our views and we wanna fight for them and we wanna argue and advocate for them. But to be in conversation, in relationships, in communities with other people, we also need to have this double vision of being able to see through others' eyes while seeing closely through our own as well. It's a pretty demanding idea. You write that um, living with your parents reminded you that you can't avoid conflicts in personal relationships and to make a habit of argument, aversion was to forever hold one's tongue. Yeah, or hold people at arm's length. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that. So I'm 27 and uh, and I'm, I'm in a peer group that is just in this stage of life, figuring out a new relationship with the parents, right? And I've seen quite often people arrive at a silent resolution that the new relationship between parent and child is going to be one of 
a little bit of distance. It can be a political difference. Um, I've seen that. But often it's something like um, sort of personal decisions, right? Like, you know, whether, whether to take someone as a spouse, you know, or, or to make some career decisions they might disapprove of. And, um, and I think there were disagreements even in my relationship with my parents where that being the new normal could have been a possibility. Um, and so the urge to run away from disagreements can sometimes mean actually just living with the disagreement and living at a distance. And, um, and I'm glad that's not where we settled on mm-hmm. <laughs> in my personal life. But, but I see that as, 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 a, as, a, uh, as almost a life choice that a lot of people make at my age. The choice to um, to live at a at a certain distance, right? Um, to not allow parents into parts of your life that you know are going to lead to disagreement, bad arguments. Yeah, it must be demanding also to have trained in argument as a debater, which um, involves so much both sideism, right? Yeah. So you have to always look at the other side. I wonder if that's really hard, you know, to have as a mental state in, in your brain. Have you always got this kind of bifurcated existence going on in <laughs> like terms a, like of... Like a like, kind of a lizard. Maybe this, or <laughs> is it this, lizards. or is it this, or is it that? <laughs> double vision. <laughs> um, it happens at two levels in mm. debate. One is, as you say, over the course of a debating career, you've argued both sides of pretty much everything. Mm. And you often have this experience of, before you go on, switching sides for a minute, thinking about what the best arguments for the other side are so you might be able to prepare for them. Mm. And I don't want to make it sound more exotic than it seems because children do it. Yeah. And and I think sometimes when I'm describing these things and when I'm trying to capture the mental state I might have been in as a kid, it feels a bit like you're putting a lot on that kid. Mm. But actually, I think the interior life of a kid is that rich. Yeah, right. You know, I really do. And one feature of a young debater's life is knowing that there's a limit to what just conviction can do because there is always going to be another side. And it's just by a, a, a small set of choices you ended up on this side rather than on that side. And I don't think that's antithetical to strong conviction, but I do think it complicates it Mm. and it gives you a sense that it's not over. Mm. Is that why uh, a lot of people drop out of debating as they become older and it is very much confined to sort of a younger mindset? You do write in your book about the, you know, the clash of principles when you find yourself arguing for something you really don't believe in. It becomes, does it become harder? It's a lot of time and it is a bit of work, isn't it? And there's a sense in which what we're doing when we're debating is we're playing. We're playing with ideas. And sometimes we're role playing, right? So sometimes in debating, you're assigned a side and you have to argue for that side whether you believe it or not. Not forever, just for two hours. And it's play. Um, And I think there must be many reasons why adults don't play. But I wonder if that's a part of the reason why we get stuck as well, stuck in our conversations, stuck in familiar grooves of Mm. thinking. So we're getting to, it seems to me, like the difference between good arguments and bad arguments. Yeah. And your book is titled 
good arguments. And I was going to ask you, <laughs> what is a good argument? But maybe we should start by saying what defines a bad argument? That's a terrific question. The one that I see most often now is, I think we've settled on this idea that an argument is just anything that vaguely supports your position, right? That it's just an expression of that position. Or a disagreement is just something that kind of happens. It's just an expression of the difference. As opposed to a view of argument as a kind of a craft. And I think we've lost that view of argument as a kind of a craft and a skill. And so um, there are lots of bad arguments, right? There are inflammatory arguments, um, defamatory mm, <laughs> arguments. Mm. But, but the one that I see a lot now is sort of speech that's not really argument at all. Have you got an example? I mean, my mind first goes to social media, right? Because it is, um, it's not actually clear you can fit in an argument in some of the length constraints. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but Certainly uh, not a sophisticated one. Yeah, exactly. But in our worst kind of disagreements just around the kitchen table or, or you know, at the sink in the kitchen or even in our workplace, I think it does resemble that mm. um, where there isn't really any structure or, or any attempt to let the other side really into your perspective of thinking so much as just kind of repeating it or gesturing vaguely at it. Is that the same as not listening? Because that's quite a crucial part of debating, isn't it? Listening to the other side. Yeah. And it's a more demanding idea of what listening requires because it's not just about hearing the words that they say, but trying to think about where they're coming from, right, and, and how they're receiving what you're saying too. So the idea of being argumentative is regarded as not a great personality trait to have. I mean, it, it's a pejorative, really. To say that someone's argumentative is not really regarded as a good thing. But as you write, shutting yourself off from arguments is also not a good thing. You were very agreeable when you first arrived at school in Australia, what do you think you missed out on as a child by being so agreeable? I think I missed out on fuller relationships with other people by being able to talk about our differences as well as our similarities. Because if you've resolved that all you're going to be is agreeable, you can only really have a relationship with the parts of the other person that you agree with, right? And you're going to set aside and try and ignore the other elements of it. And I think you miss out on the personal growth that you have of testing your ideas with those who fervently disagree with you, having to come up with something better, or knowing that the end of a disagreement, it may not be that your side prevails or their side prevails, but you realize there's a kind of a third way. So I think you also lose that kind of growth that you might have as a person. You put it really beautifully by saying it's a denial of the self that exists in communion with the world. Yeah, I think that's right. And we don't know who that self is um, until we've gone through that, through that process of relating with people. And, 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 you know, when you say argumentative is a kind of a pejorative, I agree with it. And, and it does seem like a reflection of just how little confidence we have these days on what disagreements can do for us. Mm. And one of the things that I want to say in this book is the opposite of bad disagreement is not agreement. It's good disagreement. And so maybe we need two words for argumentative. 
right? right? Good <laughs> argumentative and bad argumentative. So let's then talk about what it means to argue well and what a good argument is. What are the markers? I think the first thing is it's well-targeted, right? And so uh, disagreements become unruly when they're about everything. And in debating, you start by setting up a topic, right? And you're saying, we're talking about this today, not about how your hair looks or you know what you did to me last month or something like that. A good argument is well-structured. It meets the two basic things that an argument must do, which is it has to be true and it has to be important. And then I think maybe the third element is a good argument is well-delivered. Right? You're using the power of speech, gesture, vocal inflection, all of these tools that we have for relating. You're using that to the full to try and communicate. So the rules of debating you think are applicable to the rules of engagement in day-to-day life, as you say, agreement on what we're talking about. You know, very often you're in a discussion with someone and you go, wait, I think we're on the same side, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got to sort that out beforehand, right? Yeah. This happens with my middle child all the time. (laughs) Not talking over one another. That was very important to you, wasn't it? It was. And the idea that you take turns, Yeah. right? I get a go, you get a go, but I'm going to get a go again. So I'm not going to interrupt in the middle of it. Patience. Patience. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another one. It ends, which is important because you also write, it's easy to start an argument, but it's very hard to end I think that's right. Um, I think if cleverness is being able to argue effectively, um, wisdom is being able to choose and when to argue and for how long to argue a point. And so one of the things that I think you learn in debating is there's a million differences between the two sides. And you want to focus on the ones that are most likely to lead to a kind of a productive conversation. And when you've done that, you need to pause and remind yourself that this is not the only way of talking about our differences either, right? Sometimes the debate has to end or we have to agree to disagree sometimes. But all of that, I think, comes from a better understanding of what debate can do for us and what it can't do for us. What are the limitations? I think the one, one obvious limitation that comes to mind is, though debate often sets the preconditions for kind of an action, it's not the same as action, right? So debating human rights is not, or debating the need to take action on climate change or on human rights is not the same as acting on climate change or on human rights, right? So I think that's one thing. I think another is um, there may be times, and this is something that I, I wrestle a lot with, when you're talking about really contentious issues, you know, the trans rights, for example, where the adversarial form may not be the, the best way to have that discussion, right? It may be that debate becomes appropriate at a time when there is lots of knowledge, about these issues and people have taken the time to prepare themselves for that kind of disagreement. But short of that, it may be a more appropriate form of engagement is just to hear from people as opposed to jump in straight into the disagreement itself. Just listening. Sometimes. Mm. It may be that as a society, there has to be a period of preparation before we put ourselves in a position where we can make the most out of a debate. Mm-hmm. So. What is your idea of a good disagreement? This is 
something I changed my mind about, you know, and, and at the beginning, I think especially when you're writing a book, you want to make some grand promises. <laughs> so a good disagreement is going to enlarge your view of the world. It's going to, you know, be the magic source in your relationships. And I, and I think it can sometimes be those things. But in the end, the much more modest goal that I set for myself uh, in terms of the kind of disagreements I want to encourage is for both sides to be able to say that disagreement was worth it. It was better than not having it at all. Can you give me an example of that? Because you do actually write a bit about how a good disagreement means there's space for conversations to continue in a way that isn't a staged debate. How have you seen that firsthand? I think we all have friends with whom we know not to talk about politics. But in the same way, I think we also know people in our lives where you do actually want to get a sense of what they're thinking about a certain issue on the news. And the reason for that is not because they're going to say the same things that you believe, but because you think you're going to get something from the discussion. You might learn something, you know? And all of those are examples of the conversation kind of continuing. And so you are saying that there, there are people that you just know not to argue with ever on certain issues. It's not worthwhile. Yes, but we should not fall into the trap of overestimating what I believe is a very small number of people who are really beyond the pale, mm. right, of persuasion. I don't think those people are many at all. And even with those people, I want to say, I didn't know that the skills of disagreeing are something you can learn. I thought disagreement was just something that happens to you. So I'm going to give you a caricature sure. <laughs> situation where, okay, I'm sitting at a family dinner table, a very conservative religious uncle is sitting next to me and he says, thank God the United States Supreme Court just overturned Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And my <laughs> response as a feminist who believes in a woman's right to choose is to upend the table with a primal roar, but I sit still and say nothing. Do I write him off as not worth the time? Do I try? Are some things just not worth it? I think it depends on what you want to get out of the exchange, right? And sometimes we have a disagreement because we want to hear an opposing perspective to test our own beliefs. Sometimes we do it because it's a matter of some urgency, actually, that we persuade other people. And that may be an instance where you believe there is a need to challenge this person on their beliefs, right? And I think what we're seeing now is a kind of a political system that's built around agreement, right? Of, of marshalling your people mm. and organizing against the other side and putting your people on the court, for mm. example. And the limits of that are... As you say, we start to think about people as we have to write them off. And we also see when, when you have political factions organized only around agreement, you tend to get people egging one another on into more and more extreme positions, right? And so for me, 
being able to challenge echo chambers, groups of like-minded folks, egging each other on, that's important. And doing the work of trying to persuade one another, that goes easier when we all have a broad kind of shared skill of disagreeing well. And we maintain the faith that it's through that kind of conversation and disagreement that we can end up somewhere better than we would had we not tried it at all. So often, you know, in this polarised world, there are arguments put forward that are sometimes just lies, put forward as fact, misinformation as, you know, this is one side of the argument. How do you approach something that is actually, you know, (laughs) to be (laughs) a lie in an argument? It's a serious challenge. And misinformation, I think, speaks in part to the urgency of the need for conversation and challenge. Because one of the ways in which misinformation and disinformation proliferates is when you have echo chambers of everybody thinking the same thing and having the same thought. And in debate, there are strategies that the community has developed um, leveraging the fact that the great advantage of the truth over lies is things tend to add up. And for this reason, Disagreement is quite an effective way of ferreting out lies because you can point out, well, how do you explain this problem that arises when you take what you're asserting as fact as fact, Mm. right? So one, one of the examples that I give in the book is liars tend to tell many lies rather than one lie. And so you can kind of fall behind trying to challenge all of them. And so instead you do something called a plug and replace, you take one representative lie and you assume that it's true. So let's assume for a sec that your assertion that immigrants are dangerous is true, right? Then how do you explain the fact that actually crime rates are much lower among that demographic rather than the average population? And so what you've done there is you've assumed that the other assertion is true. You've kind of plugged it in to the world as we know it. And you've identified all the problems that tend to arise, right? And instead, you might say, well, actually, it's just not true that that group of people has a higher propensity to crime. And that's why we know that's consistent with how we understand the world to be. And so once you've done that with a representative lie, you can say it's kind of symptomatic of how you're approaching this disagreement is you're telling mistruths or you're skating around the truth. And it is a real challenge because we're now living at a time where mistruths are becoming the basis of entire worldviews, right? So it's not just a solitary bit of misinformation. It's a kind of a whole conspiratorial view of the world. And that is one of the reasons why I feel a kind of an urgency to make the case for disagreement and challenge, because once that worldview has formed, the possibility of being able to speak across those differences, I think, goes down. But I think the best chance we have of reversing that trend is to be able to challenge those kinds of views before they proliferate into something something mm. that's harder, harder to, to challenge. Do you think it's harder for people to um, confront disagreement like this in person or as an idea? I mean, What's your experience in terms of actually confronting someone who embodies something you disagree with very 
vehemently. It's always difficult. It's difficult in person because there's a kind of a vulnerability, right, of the other person's wrath or their um, unhappiness with you is so visible, right? But actually, I think that sense of vulnerability and difficulty is often a sign that something could change because you're having a real encounter with someone. Whereas the ease of hiding behind a screen and typing out something nasty, it's an ease that comes at the cost of an actual connection, Mm. right? And so whatever difficulties there are in face-to-face disagreements, I think that's the cost of a genuine encounter. And the payoff for it is maybe the ability to change the other person's mind. Mm. And so I think the ease of online or uh, virtual disagreements, um, it's a kind of a false easiness. (laughs) Bullying is a thread that kind of runs through your book from the school ground, obviously, to parliamentary debates is another example that somehow springs to mind when we say (laughs) bullying. Um, it, It seems to be one of those intractable problems, twas ever thus issue. So what is your advice to people when they, you know, plainly dealing with bullies? I think it's such an ancient problem because we contain the impulses to bully. Right? All of us. All of us. Right. I think that. And, we all have inner bullies. And some people really <laughs> give don't. expression to that and other people <laughs> don't. But, um, but, you know, when we are feeling really defensive, for example, I do think we can engage in bullying tactics. So what can we do? I think we can do two things. The first is we can diagnose the common moves that bullies make. One example that I give in the book is there's a kind of a wrangler, right, who all he or she does is say no and criticize your ideas without ever putting forward an argument of their own. And to that person, you might say, well, so what do you propose, Mm. right? And so to pin the wrangler to a kind of a position that they need to argue for as well can stop them from shifting the goalposts. So I think the first is to diagnose the common moves and have available a toolkit that that you can respond with. And and I go through that in the book. And I think the second thing is, you know, when you're one of the ways in which bullies succeed is by changing the rules of the game from a debate and a discussion and a conversation to just an all-out brawl Mm. where anything goes. Mm. Or an ad hominem attack. Right. And so returning to that kind of agreement about the kind of conversation we want to have. Um, I think that kind of self-consciousness and that willingness to pause and say, this is the kind of discussion we should be having, um, I think that can help. I want to bring the idea of good arguments into the household now because you write about a survey on dishwashing of all things, which was uh, commissioned by the manufacturers (laughs) of um, Finnish, the dishwashing detergent. And there were questions over household disputes about washing the dishes. And you say that these underlined two things about these sorts of disputes. What are those two things, Bo? First, that some of our hardest, most persistent disagreements are with those with whom we're closest. And two, that they're waged over trivial matters. Right. So let's take number one. So why can't we resolve persistent disagreements between those who are closest to us. And actually, what can we take from debating that will help us do that, please? In a word, I think it's carelessness. When it comes to people whom we love, we have this idea of love that it's 
they should get us without us even having said anything. And then some music plays <laughs> when you're looking at each <laughs> Sounds other lovely. across the table. Um, it does sound lovely, but I want to say it causes a lot of problems. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've agreed to share our life with this person, so they must agree with us to some extent. And so a disagreement feels a lot more threatening. Mm. Now, I think one is um, a, a presumption, which we wouldn't dare to make about a stranger, that they, they're going to agree with us by the end of this conversation. Um, and another is exactly as you say, which is this notion that, or this understanding that we are in this together. <laughs> so Actually, I don't think know. people would make that uh, presumption about friends either. Yeah, They'd, that's they true. They wouldn't presume to uh, believe that a really close friend of yours thinks exactly the same way. I think that's right. And yet we do that with romantic relationships. Yeah, something about the shared signature on a mortgage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Forever um, binding. <laughs> um, and all of those things make us quicker to anger when we don't get things our way. And I think the last little bit I'd add is because we share so much of our lives with our spouses and with our partners, a disagreement about something small like the dishwasher can become a disagreement about everything, right? A disagreement about that thing that happened on the family holiday last time or something your in-laws are doing. <laughs> All of these things kind of get pulled in. Is it really about the dishes? You know, exactly. And so I think uh, how debating helps is the first is reminding us that every disagreement should act with some amount of agreement. And the way in which we're going to try and sort out our disagreements is by making arguments about it. And that's different from ad hominem attacks. That's different from um, just emoting, right? It's different from these other forms of self-expression. And we're going to try as best we can to focus on the disagreements that are most likely to lead to a kind of a productive conversation between us. What else could we do? Well, another one that I go through um, in the book is is learning to choose your battles, right? Mm. And, you know, I think it's good practice whenever we get into a conflict beforehand to just slow things down, to make sure we're not just entering into it thoughtlessly or out of defensiveness or pride. And one of the checklists that I go through in the book is before we launch into a disagreement, checking whether the disagreement is actually real, right? So it's not realizing you're actually talking about the same thing. You want to make sure it's important enough to justify the dispute that you're having. You want to make sure the disagreement is specific, right? So it's not a, a debate about just libertarianism at writ large. Mm. Um, it's not, you have to cut it down to a size where you're going to be able to make progress over it in a certain time. And you want to make sure the two sides are aligned in their objectives for having the conversation. So I call that the RISA checklist, R-I-S-A. And it's a way to make sure that we're picking our battles and putting our energies towards the disagreements that we think are going to be most useful. And what did debating teach you about empathy? The main thing that it taught me is when I was that kid, um, struggling with the differences between me and my peers, I was often told to have empathy <laughs> or to empathize. And this is a very puzzling instruction <laughs> mm -hmm. because who knows what empathy is, right? It, it's sometimes described as a kind of a psychic connection that happens spontaneously. It's described as a virtue that some people have and others don't. And one of the things that debate taught me is 
It can also look like a series of actions. It can look like stepping into the other perspectives and and reasoning through what the best arguments for that side are. It can be looking over your own case with a critical eye. That's really stress testing your own argument, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, And entertaining the thought or having the experience of thinking, your case is imperfect, mm. right? There are problems here. It's You haven't gotten to 100%. That instills a kind of a humility, right? And I don't think that's the same as empathy. It's not the same mm. as, and there's no substitute for listening to the other person and, and allowing them to express themselves. But that humility does create a kind of an opening through which empathy might arise. Mm. It seems like a very good exercise to take into the real world. I think so. Bo So is the author of Good Arguments, What the Art of Debating Can Teach Us About Listening Better and Disagreeing Well, published by Simon & Schuster. We've published two articles with Bo, and we've put a link to those in our show notes, which you can find on our website. If you liked this episode with Bo, I recommend my previous conversation with Heidi Everett about her memoir, My Friend Fox. It's a conversation about language, music, art, and her various mental states. You can listen to it in our feed, and we've put a link to it in our show notes on our website. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Mel Chun, mixed by Daniel Simo. The series producer is Jane Lee, and Molly Glassie is executive producer. I'm Lucy Clark. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. 